0: Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission 7 billion fulfilled people, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Rupert is a biologist and author of more than 80 scientific papers and 10 books, including his latest Science and Spiritual Practices. After studying philosophy and history of science at Harvard University, he became a Dean and Director of Studies in Biochemistry and Cell Biology at Cambridge University. He has investigated unexplained phenomena such as how pigeons find their way home, the apparent abilities of animals to anticipate earthquakes and tsunamis, and then subsequently studied similar phenomena in human beings. His book, The Science Delusion, received the Book of the Year Award from the British Scientific and Medical Network, Deepak Chopra wrote 30 years after his first heretical books, Sheldrake's new one is a landmark achievement. No science writing has inspired me more. And the Sunday Times said, Sheldrake will be seen as a prophet. So we are in very, very good company. Rupert, thanks so much for being here.
1: Good to be with you.
0: Multiple, I'm going to delve into some of the stuff you've been looking at recently of your latest book to start with. And um, multiple studies have kind of shown that, religious and spiritual practices make people happier and they make people healthier however we're living in quite a unique time at the moment aren't we this is the only time in human history when i think the majority of the population say they have no religion and that's even more uh, apparent in like western europe does does that concern you knowing these like these statistics of on the one hand yes we know they make you happy and healthier but we've never had less religion ever so like does that does that concern you (laughs)
1: Well, the the statistics showing that the majority have no religion are largely confined to Western Europe. Mm. It doesn't really apply to the U.S., where the majority still do have. And in countries like India and Sri Lanka and um, Arab countries and so on and Africa, uh, still the great majority of people are religious. So this is largely a European phenomenon. Um, And many people would describe Western Europe as post-Christian well, I think it's very disorienting for a whole culture to lose its traditional religious faith. Um, and the result is that um, in Western Europe, most people haven't become atheists. Um, what they've b- become is rather lost. And many would say they're spiritual but not religious. Uh, and as an enormous interest in spiritual practices, um, which can now be done, of course, outside the context of a religious framework or within it. And that's really the focus of my new book, which is about seven different spiritual practices which have great benefits, uh, as science has shown, um, uh, but which anyone can do. And what I show in my book is how anyone can take up these practices. um, They're practically all of them free um, and that they'll have great benefits for their lives.
0: And, and what's interesting, and you mentioned there, like that anyone can do it. So it's not, you know, yes, I think you've noticed and explored some of the, about seven practices which underpin all the major world religions. But whether you're religious, whether you're a Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, or just no, not religious at all, you don't actually need anyone can enjoy it. So I mean, what have we got? We've got like, there's, there's meditation, gratitude, connecting with nature, relating to plants, rituals, singing and chanting and pilgrimages and holy places. These are the kind of things which underpin these these major world religions, yeah?
1: Yes. Yes, all religions have these practices. Um, and, you know, each religion has its own package of practices. Um, but these are all things which anyone can do. I mean, for example, being grateful. There's now a lot of evidence that people who are grateful um, are happier. And some critics said of this research well of course they're grateful because they're happier well it turns out that they're happier because they're grateful uh you can do actual exercises where people practice gratitude make a list of the things they're grateful for instead of taking for granted um and making a practice of being grateful for example giving thanks to somebody who's helped them in their lives that they've never acknowledged before that's one simple exercise that's been tried out um, and these things may have measurable effects on people's happiness, and there are very simple ways of doing this. All traditional cultures have uh, ways of giving thanks before meals, for example. For exa- in in the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition, it'd be a grace.
0: You kept asking yourself, what do all seven have in common? What what unites them? Because on the surface, they, you know, going on a, a rituals or um, like being in nature like some of these things seem very different but when you actually started asking this question what do they all have in common you, you came up with an answer didn't you?
1: Well yes I think what they have in common is that they're all modes of connecting they all connect us with something bigger than ourselves so gratitude for example um, it connects us at, at the very least with other people you know all the people who've helped us in our lives i mean none of us would be around today if we hadn't been looked after when we were helpless babies or educated or taught how to read and write and um and the people who help us all the time doctors dentists people who deliver our food who grow our food make our clothes etc i mean when you begin to think about it there's a huge amount to be grateful for to other people but then uh, none of us would be here without the natural world that survived, that supports us without the planet Gaia and the agricultural systems and the sunlight and then the solar system and then the galaxy and ultimately the universe, the very fact there's anything at all rather than nothing. So it's really a question of how far you want to go. I mean, you can go as far as ultimate reality on which we all depend or you can confine it to your nearest and dearest and the people who you meet, who you feel grateful to, but there's actually no limit to how you can, how far you can be grateful. And that means that it's a form of connection, recognizing how connected we are with everything else. This, again, is a principle that all religions emphasize, I and mean, Buddhists, for example, have a doctrine of codependent origination, which is really that nothing is isolated, and by itself everything is intellect. So, Gratitude helps us recognise that.
0: Well, I guess talking about connection, on the flip side, you've got, you have got you talk about atomised individualism. Is, is, that, is that what we're talking about perhaps we're getting more and more in Western Europe? We're, we're, when we're losing some of these practices and these kind of rites of passage, what do you mean by atomised individualism?
1: It's a peculiar theory of society that grew up in the West in, in the 17th century to start with. All traditional societies take it for granted that the society is a unit. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. Without our families, we wouldn't survive, especially as babies. Without the larger society that protects and natures us, we wouldn't be here. And all societies have moralities based on fitting in with others and cooperating. And this is not just true of people, it's a basic biological fact. Um, you know, animal societies, packs of wolves, flocks of birds, ant and termite colonies, bees and wasps, all these social insects, they all work for the good of the whole. It's not a matter of doing their own thing. You know, uh, an an ant isolated from its colony wouldn't survive for very long, nor would a bee, nor would a wasp, nor would a wolf. Um, But in the 17th century, Thomas Hobbes, who was a one of the founders of modern science, put forward the idea of atomism in science. He took up an old Greek idea that nature is made up of ultimate units of matter, atoms that are basically separate, and that society is made up of basic atoms, namely individuals. And instead of seeing society as coming first and individuals being part of society, he saw individuals as coming first with free will, free choice, and selfish desires. And society is kind of imposing an order on individuals. But humans have never been isolated individuals. Our ancestors were highly social. I mean, all tribal cultures, hunter-gatherers, are intensely social. And we're descended from apes, which are intensely social. Chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, and monkeys. And their ancestors were intensely social animals. And there are... More individualistic animals like snakes, crocodiles, uh, and so on. Reptiles on the whole are less social, but birds and mammals, most species are very social. So um, anyway, the the idea of Hobbes was that we're essentially individuals, free individuals with free choice. this gave rise to the philosophy of individualism, which has so dominated the West. It's all about me, and society is something I have to live with or put up with, uh, but, and it's annoying because it can restrain my freedom of choice and um, doing what I want. Um, now, this is completely different from the attitude you find, say, in India. I lived in India for seven years, and i traveled. I lived in Malaysia for a year. I've traveled in Sri Lanka several times. And... Um, you know as in asian cultures for most people their family comes first and their social group it's a completely different mentality um and they're usually rather appalled by the way in the west uh, it's all about me and people move away from their family have very little to do with them when they're old folks their parents get old then they're sent off to an old people's home and the state's meant to look after them um this way of living is, is something that's developed in the West under the aspect of this philosophy of extreme individualism, which reaches its apogee in the United States and probably reaches its ultimate pinnacle in Donald Trump, um, uh, who represents the ultimate in kind of me, me, me uh, individualism. Um That's why he strikes a chord with some Americans, because they see him as an embodiment of this kind of ultimate individualistic culture. But the fact is that um, we're all completely dependent on other people, and it's an illusion to think that um, there's this individual atomistic society. Nevertheless, by behaving as if it's true, what happens is that traditional family bonds are dissolved, traditional social bonds are dissolved, traditional religious bonds are dissolved. because. You know, 200 years ago when most people in Europe went to church or Jewish people went to synagogues, you know, there was a tightly knit community bound together by common beliefs. Uh, but then people stopped going to church. It's only about 5% of the population go to church regularly in England, for example. Um, that means 95% of people don't have any regular religious practices. So there's no sense of a shared community of people you sing together with every Sunday or pray together with. They're all doing their own thing on Facebook or watching TV or, um, you know, cleaning the car or whatever on a Sunday morning. Um, So that leads to this fragmentation. And then the fragmentation of families, the fragmentation of society ends up with people isolated. Uh, Huge numbers of people live alone now. And lonely people, there have been many scientific studies that show that people who are lonely and isolated get depressed more easily, their immune system doesn't work so well, they're more prone to disease and infection, Uh, and they're, generally speaking, much less happy, because we're social animals. It's our nature to be social. And in fact, the worst punishment that most governments can think of is putting people in solitary confinement. So, uh, unfortunately, we've got a social and political ideology that emphasises individualism in the name of freedom. And it's true. We're more free if we don't have to think about other people. But um, it's a great limitation on the way we can live and uh, on the happiness that we can experience. And of course, depression is now the endemic disease of Western societies.
0: You, you're, you're drawn to something you refer to as the mysteries of everyday life. What is it that fascinates you about that?
1: Well, I think that a great many um, mysterious things are happening in everyday life. The most mysterious of all is the fact we're conscious at all. And there's no explanation in materialistic science for the existence of consciousness. The very existence of human consciousness is called the hard problem in the philosophy of mind. Because if you have a materialist philosophy of nature, materialist philosophy says the only reality is matter or physical reality, and it's unconscious. So the entire universe is made up of galaxies, stars, planets, atoms, gas clouds, etc., which are all completely unconscious, and life on Earth is completely unconscious, evolved by blind chance, and brains are the mechanisms that enable us to see things and do things and stuff, but they're just physical mechanisms like computers, and they ought to be unconscious if they're made of matter and all matters unconscious, yet, surprisingly, we're conscious. So, this is called the hard problem. It's a grave embarrassment for materialism that we're conscious, and some philosophers try to pretend we're not, and that it's it's actually an illusion. Um, That's a favourite theory among philosophers of mind, but um, an illusion produced by our brains. But the trouble is, it doesn't really explain it because it presupposes it an illusion. Uh, is a mode of consciousness itself. So saying consciousness is an illusion presupposes consciousness. It doesn't solve the hard problem. Um, So the very fact of consciousness is a challenge for the whole of science as we know it. And the people who like to say our brains are just computers, well, computers are not conscious. They don't have emotions. They don't have any of the things that uh, we have that make us conscious the experience of qualities like redness or greenness or the enjoyment of music. They're just processing algorithms. So there's a whole lot of people who'd like to pretend that we are that's basically what we are. Not very convincing, in my view. So that's the greatest mystery of everyday life. But then there's a whole lot of others uh, which don't fit in with this materialist dogmatism that dominates science at the moment. One of them is the feeling of being stared at I wrote a book about that, and um, many people, most people, 95% of adults and children, have had the experience of turning around, and finding someone's looking at them, or staring at someone from behind and seeing them uh, turn around. I, I suppose you've had this, absolutely, sometime or not. Yes, well, I certainly have, and practically everyone has. So now, if our thoughts are nothing but our brains. If I'm looking at somebody from behind through a window and they don't know I'm there and they can't see me or smell me or hear me or see me, uh, I'm just out If I look at them and they turn around, it shows that they've been able to feel something about my intentional gaze or attention um, that can't be explained if my, all my attention and thoughts are just inside my head. Um, so it ought not to happen. And so the result is that most scientists and university science and psychology departments pretend that it doesn't happen. They say it's nonsense, it's rubbish, it's superstition, it's just based on faulty statistics and people being deluded by their own experience when real science shows it can't exist. And some people have even proposed campaigns of education to eradicate what they regard as a superstitious belief. Um, So... um, If you do experiments, I mean, all these people who think it doesn't exist don't bother to do the experiments because they're so sure they're right. If you do the experiments, and I've done a lot of simple ones, people work in pairs, one sits behind the other, Um, they look or don't look in a random sequence and people have to guess if they're being looked at. It turns out people really can tell. I have an online test on my uh, website at the moment where people can do it online. Um, So there's plenty of evidence that people can tell when they're being looked at. Um, And that shows our minds stretch out beyond our brains through attention. Our attention reaches out beyond our brain. And it's not just us. I mean, animals can tell when they're being looked at. Uh, A lot of people have found they can wake up sleeping dogs or cats by staring at them. Uh, Wildlife photographers have found that if they're hidden and they're trying to take a picture of an animal far away through a telephoto lens, if they concentrate on it, even though the animal can't see them, it'll get restless and run away or fly away. They have to take the picture quickly. Um, so there's tons of evidence for this, plus um, security guards, private detectives, all take it for granted that people can tell when they're stared at. So if you're following someone, you don't stare at their back of their neck because they're likely to feel it turn around and your cover's blown. You have to watch them a bit or you lose them, But you look at their feet as little as possible. And um, in martial arts, you can actually train yourself to be more sensitive. So here's a mystery of everyday life, something everyone knows about, which science simply can't explain at present. And the only way to explain this is to see that our minds are field-like. They're in our brains, but they stretch out beyond them, just like the field of a mobile telephone is inside the mobile telephone, but stretches out invisibly beyond it. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. Um, so that's one mystery. Another one I discuss in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Ends Are Coming Home, is Dogs That Know When Their Ends Are Coming Home. And dogs, um, it, many people have dogs that anticipate the arrival of a member of the family. They go and wait at the door or window. Or cats uh, that do the same kind of thing. And again, the skeptics say, well, that's just make believe. Of course, the dog doesn't know. It must just be, if it reacts, it must just be hearing the car engine outside or smelling the person coming or a routine time. But I've done many experiments now where we videotape the, the animal while the person's out. Um, we um, have them come home at random times. They don't know in advance. Tell them by mobile phone when to come. They travel in taxis or other unfamiliar vehicles, so there's no familiar car signs. And the dogs still know, and we've got it all on film. So, um, again, this is another mystery of everyday life. Another one is telephone telepathy, knowing who's calling or thinking of somebody who calls. And, again, I've done lots of experiments that show this is not just chance or guessing.
0: One of the things you um, um, best most famous for is... A concept which you came up with, morphic resonance, and you mentioned it um, a few minutes ago at on, on the beginning of the interview. This is the idea that there's a kind of memory in nature, or collective memory, and um, one of the experiments which was fascinating was, um, if you train rats to learn a new trick in, say, London, rats mm. all around the world will learn that same thing quicker. And this has actually been backed up with actual quantifiable evidence, isn't it? That That's... This is this is something which another thing which I'm sure a lot of people would be scratching their heads, thinking like, how 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 could this be? Like like, don't look at it. Pretend pretend. Oh, this is rather embarrassing a bit of science. But like, how? Yeah, I mean, I I don't actually have a question there. I just wanted to just uh, just to say that study. I think it's fascinating.
1: Well, it's part of a more general theory. Morphic resonance is really a theory of memory and nature, and what mm-hmm. I'm saying is that there's a kind of inherent memory in nature. The so-called laws of nature were not all laid down at the moment of the Big Bang like a Napoleonic code. They're basically habits that build up as nature evolves. The whole universe is evolving, all life's evolving. And so the regularities of nature, which science studies, are actually habits, not governed by immaterial laws that transcend nature. That's the conventional view. Scientists like to come across on the whole as hard-nosed, no-nonsense, non-metaphysical. But the idea of all the laws of nature that govern you and me and everything else uh, being laid down at the moment of the Big Bang in some invisible trans-metaphysical uh, reality i mean um, is what they actually believe in. Um, and uh, there's not a shred of evidence for it. So um, I think that habits make more sense. They also fit with the... Worldview of Buddhists and Hindus, both of uh, those cultures are based on the idea of nature having habits, a kind of memory. Um, so um, I think all animals have a kind of collective memory, and so do all humans. It's a bit like what Jung called the collective unconscious. Um, and that's why if you train rats in one place to learn a new trick, rats can learn it somewhere else. If people learn computer programming in one place, it should be easier for people to learn it somewhere else. If they learn skateboarding, it should get easier to learn for everyone else. And um, there's evidence that this actually happens. Um, of course, in the human realm, you have to tease this apart from changes in um, technology, uh, instructional videos online, etc. cetera. Um, all that happens, too. Um, But I think there's actually quite good evidence for morphic resonance uh, as a memory principle in nature. You used,
0: uh, for humans, you used the IQ as an example, didn't you? So, for example, the IQ test has been going for, what, 30 or 40 years, I think, maybe, and they've, or maybe the the, the results have improved by 30%. I think that's what it was. And there's no evidence that actually us as humans have got any more intelligent. But Mm. the fact, how can you explain the fact that they're, all the results are about 30% better. And so that, that ties into that same idea that we've had this collective consciousness that somehow we're tapping into.
1: Yes, I, IQ tests have mysteriously improved um, all around the world. I think it's just uh, not because people are getting more intelligent. I think the tests are getting easier because so many people have already done them. Um, the same applies to any kind of test. Um, when my older son was 16, he had to do... Our national exams in Britain, GCSE, um, which everyone has to do at the same time. The exams are synchronized, because otherwise people could ring up friends somewhere else and tell them the questions. Um, And he came to me one day and said that he and his friends had thought of a way of getting extra marks without doing extra work. So I asked how they were going to do that. And he said, Well, bimorphic resonance. He said say in an exam with 12 questions, we'll do questions 11 and 12 first. And then we'll go back to questions one, two, three, four, we'll be back. <laughs> Everyone else in Britain. And then we'll get a boost by morphic resonance. That's a genius. <laughs> a very good idea. I've tried to persuade people who set exams to actually put this into practice and change the order of the questions in in a subset of exam papers. We could turn the entire examination system into a morphic resonance test. I've not persuaded them to do it yet. I mean, science examiners are hard to persuade. (laughs) (laughs) About
0: about a few years ago, I was watching an interview of yours, and I, I think, off the top of my head, I think it was with Joe Rogan. But there was a, about three weeks ago I was having a um, dinner with some friends and I was trying to remember and I couldn't find it. You told a study, and I might get this wrong, it was, I want to say swallows or it was to do with milk, and it was the, uh, the, and it was we're talking about morphic resonance, and it was something about how the milk bottles are in one part of England. And does that ring any bells? I, I was trying to find that same oh, yes, study. Yes, 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 and yes, I couldn't that's, find that's,
1: it. That's um, uh, uh, something that happened with blue tips, Blue tits. So in America, they're called trichodies. Um In the 1920s, um, someone started in Southampton in southern England. Um, they had cardboard tops with milk, milk delivered every day to the doorstep. Um, this still happens in England. I have milk delivered every day. It arrived this morning. Um, one of the things I'm grateful for, I can have bottles of fresh organic milk delivered to my doorstep. Then, when we finish, we rinse the bottle and they take them back, wash them, and use them again. It's a great system. Anyway, in, in the 1920s, people in Southampton noticed that um, the um, cardboard tops of their milk bottles had been removed and an inch or so of cream from the top had disappeared. They started complaining to the milk companies and things. And then it turned out that what was happening was that blue tits had learned how to open these tops and drink. The milk, the cream. Uh, In fact, some were found drowned headfirst in in milk bottles. Uh, So, um, this aroused quite a bit of interest in England. And um, a team at Cambridge University uh, then heard reports from somewhere else, miles from Southampton, where this had been observed. They decided to track the spread of this habit, and they found that it uh, started showing up all over Britain. Um, uh, often in places 100 miles or more from where it had previously been observed. And the rate of discovery increased. And it wasn't just blue tits moving around because they're home-loving birds and they don't usually move more than a few miles. So when it was more than 50 miles away, it was an independent discovery. The rate of discovery increased. Um, So this seemed to be... Um, uh, at the time um, scientists were actually speculating it must be something like telepathy because they were very puzzled Um, I think it's a very good example of morphic resonance Uh, one example was in Holland where they also had uh, milk deliveries during the war um, when Holland was occupied deliveries of milk came to a halt and they started again soon after the war Um, and blue tits only lived two or three years so there weren't any survivors from the golden age of free cream uh, (laughs) before the war, um, when it started again. Um, And yet, uh, within months, all over Holland, blue tits were taking cream off the top of milk bottles. Interestingly, I mean, here where I live in London, in Hampstead, um, um, when we first started having our milk deliveries, it happened on a regular basis, I mean, on my own doorstep. I was quite pleased in a way because I liked seeing this example actually happening, not only close to home, but on my very doorstep. Um, But then, um, like many other people, we switched to semi-skimmed milk, which doesn't have cream on the top of the bottle. And it stopped. This kind of (laughs) dying out. Owing to the what must be very annoying for blue tits, owing to this kind of health fad where um, people have semi-skimmed milk instead of full um, skimmed milk with cream, it's not worth the trouble for a bit of dilute semi-skimmed milk. Before they were getting that, this rich cream.
0: I I mentioned um, when I did the introduction um, the word the word uh, heretical. And so when 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 these kind of ideas were first being, you know, thrown around the sort of scientific community, it was about thirty years ago, forty years ago. I'm sure, yeah, like, how, how have you noticed a, a difference, if at all, to the openness or the rejection of some of these ideas over the last, since you first proposed them to now? Well,
1: I think that the thing is that most people are quite open to these things. I mean, the sense of being stared at, 95% of the population have experienced it. So if, if you say to them, this is rubbish, it doesn't happen, it can't happen, then they think there's something wrong with you. I mean because everyone, everyone says yes it happens to me so most people are open to that including most scientists when you talk to them about their private life and their, you know, when they're off duty um, uh, dogs that know when their owners are coming home about 50% of dog owners have had this experience um, and they're totally open to it um, they don't need any persuasion that this is happening because they see it happen um, they just find it weird that people deny it Telephone telepathy, about 80% of people have had these experiences. They're open to that. Um, Now, when you go into a scientific institution or when you talk to somebody who belongs to one of these so-called skeptic movements or who's a militant atheist, these are the people who are usually most dogmatically against these phenomena. um, um, They'll tell you it's absolute rubbish. There's no evidence for it. And when you say, well, have you read these papers? And I wouldn't waste my time on reading papers on this in scientific journals, because obviously they're, they're, there must be some fault in the papers, because it's impossible. I mean, it's total dogma. Um, so within scientific institutions and universities, there's a taboo about these things. And most people who want to keep their jobs and not cause trouble just to keep quiet about these things at work. But as soon as they've finished, you know, their home in the evening, especially after a glass of wine or something, um, uh, even most scientists are perfectly prepared to admit that these things happen to them. So we're in a peculiar position where there's a kind of official worldview within the scientific community, which some people fervently believe in. People like Richard Dawkins, the militant atheist and militant dogmatic skeptic types they're passionate about it and you know they they go on and on about this and um, um and they they make a lot of noise um and other people on the whole keep quiet when it, when they're at work but it doesn't mean they actually believe it i think it's rather like um you know communism in russia under brezhnev you know under brezhnev it was the official doctrine if you didn't at least pretend to believe in it, you couldn't get a good job and you didn't get ahead. And if you actually openly disagreed with it, you were persecuted as a dissident and uh, in many cases sent to psychiatric hospitals, um, treated as mad. Um, but it's a bit like that still in science. Um, and many scientists, especially in Asia, where hardly anyone believes this dogmatic materialist worldview. I, I lived seven years in India, worked as a scientist there. None of my Indian colleagues believed in this dogmatic materialism. They were Hindus or Muslims or Sikhs or whatever, or some were Buddhists. Um, None of them believed this dogmatic worldview, but when they were at work, they were perfectly conventional Western-type scientists, because that's what it took to get ahead and keep a job and get promoted and that sort of thing. But as soon as they got home from work, they reverted to being pretty orthodox Hindus, Muslims or Christians or whatever. Um, So, uh, in fact, now the majority of scientists are Asian, not European. I mean, if you add in China and India um, and Sri Lanka and and, and, add in South America, too, where most people haven't bought into this materialist worldview, um, uh, if you took a poll of the whole of the scientific community over the whole world, uh, dogmatic materialists would be in quite a small minority. There was recently a poll organized here in Britain, um, and it turns out that people like that uh, are only about 25% of the scientific community. And 75% don't uh, subscribe to this dogmatic materialism. They're a majority, and yet they keep quiet. So we're dealing here not so much something to do with scientific evidence as kind of sociological phenomenon.
0: I, I, I saw that. I'm um, talking about sort of skeptics. Um, I, I saw that you, um, you wrote a book, co-authored a book with um, Michael Shermer, who's been on the show. Like he's a, a famous skeptic. How did, uh, how did those conversations go?
1: Well, Michael Shermer is a dogmatic skeptic and he's president of the Skeptic Society, author of the Skeptic Column in Scientific American, you know, leader of the Skeptic Association of California. I mean, he's a career skeptic. He's got. I mean, he couldn't possibly admit these things happen, or his entire career would fall <laughs> apart. Um, so um, he basically just ignored everything I said. You know, um, when I said there's all this evidence for telepathy, and here it is, and that all these dogs know when their ends coming home, and here are the studies and stuff. His response to that was to post a picture of himself with a cuddly dog of his own saying you know i really love my dog but my dog doesn't know when i'm coming home you know and that was his only response uh, i mean he's as a skeptic totally against anecdotal evidence science should be based on statistics quantitative studies i presented all that but then he said well my dog doesn't do it <laughs> well um, and, uh, you know, he's a master at deflecting attention. His, his response, anyone can read them. They're online or they can look at our book called Arguing Science. And I know not making this up. But in every single case where there was an awkward argument, he just changed the subject or tried to deflect attention. Um, so it was very frustrating uh, dealing with Michael Sherman <laughs> because clearly nothing would shift him from his dogmatic position. He does have one strength as a sceptic. Many sceptics get incredibly angry if their position is challenged. Um, And he's a fairly mellow kind type of person. He comes across as being quite likeable. So at least he has the advantage he doesn't get angry. He just changes the subject.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What does a fulfilled life mean to
1: you? Oh, that's such a hard question. I think it must involve... um, being connected with other people, being connected with the world, doing something that's worthwhile—that's not just about oneself—that's helping other people. Um, and uh, as social animals, we, we're fulfilled when we're related to others. So I think it would involve, if possible, you know, good family life, being in uh, working well with the community around one, helping other people, um, and. Um, Feeling that one's connected with nature um, with the wider universe and I would add to the source of all reality I mean, I myself am a Christian. I'm an Anglican and I um, I believe there's an underlying consciousness in the whole universe which Christians call God and Hindus call Brahma and I mean different names but um, all religions believe there's an underlying consciousness, that ultimate reality is conscious, not unconscious. That's what makes them different from materialists and atheists. So I think we have to be in some kind of harmony or relationship with the source of all things, including our own minds and consciousness. And um, so those are some of the ingredient, ingredients of a fulfilling life.
0: What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a positive impact on their lives?
1: feeling grateful um just thinking about the things for which uh, we're grateful you know the people to whom we're grateful the earth to which we can be grateful the source of all being to which we can be grateful being grateful connects us um makes us measurably happier and it's absolutely free um so um just starting with being grateful before meals whether one shows an outward sign through saying grace or holding hands, um, or before going to bed or when waking up in the morning, just spending some time to count one's blessings, to think of all the things for which one's grateful. The opposite of gratefulness is taking things for granted or feeling entitled and complaining if things aren't exactly as one might want them to be. And um, people who are grateful are generally happier and more popular People who are ungrateful are generally unhappier and less popular. I mean, most people would rather be with someone who's happy and grateful than someone who's unhappy, miserable, or feels entitled, and complains all the time. And one can change the kind of person one is through adopting a practice of grat- gratitude uh, as part of one's daily life.
0: Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them?
1: to my website www.sheldrake.org um and of course there are my books uh, and lots of videos and things but there are links to all those things on the website